I'm Steve Glaveski, and this is Venture Backed. Welcome to the show, Kevin. It's my pleasure for being here. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for having me. No, thank you so much for for joining us. It's an absolute honor to have you on the show as somebody who's been in the tech space for about, what, 32 plus years now? Um, At least. At least, at least. And I um, understand, I mean, you're joining us from California today, but you were over in Uzbekistan with uh, Tim Ferriss recently. Yes, that's right. I was there in uh, Tajikistan as well. Mm-hmm. It was my first experience in Central Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, I highly recommend it as um, you won't run into too many other tourists. Yeah. Um, and um, it's a surprise, um, that part of the world in many, many dimensions, um, not least which is um, we think of them as very remote, but they're actually they think of themselves as the center of everything, and that's was a nice. That was a nice surprise. Yeah, I think I saw something like that on your Twitter where you said uh, Uzbekistan is the center of the world. Yeah, yeah. Did you try the uh, the pilaf? Of course, it's a national dish for them, mm-hmm. um, and actually, you went to something called the National Pilaf Museum. I think wow, it was. Wow, there's a museum dedicated and, to pilaf. Well, it's they they offer like ten different varieties on these huge cauldrons that are at least you know three feet or a meter and a half across. Wow. It's it's really amazing. Is there a spicy uh, variation? There must be, but must um, be. I'm not a big red meat eater, so I, I have a little difficulty in those kind of places, because uh, I have a, a, a more of a select selection of food that I'll eat. Right, fair enough. Well, my uh, my family's from Eastern Europe, so red meat is more or less uh, powerful the course for <laughs> us. Um, are there any more uh, uncharted corners of the globe you let yet to explore, Kevin? Oh, of course. I haven't been to Africa uh, almost anywhere. Um, and I, the Russian, this was my first journey to a former Soviet Republic. So there's lots of um, Russia to do and um, South America. I've been to just little spots here and there. So most of my grand trips have been Europe and Asia. Excellent, excellent. Okay, well, we won't spend too much time talking about our respective travels. Um, our audience, Kevin, will know you uh, chiefly as the editor of Wired. Um, they might know you as custodian of one of the most recognizable beards in the tech scene and as a world-renowned futurist. And um, to this point, you've just released a paperback version of The Inevitable, Understanding the 12 Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future. But the hard copy came out last year, and it's gone on to become a New York Times bestseller and Wall Street Journal bestseller, so congratulations. Well, thank you. Um, And on this show, we often talk about emerging technologies uh, with my guests, and we hypothesize and um and are about what the impact of these technologies will be on existing industries, on humanity as we know it. And your book explores 12 trends that you say will completely revolutionize the way we buy, work, learn, uh, communicate, and so on. We'll touch on these trends throughout the conversation today, but I was keen to understand how you landed on these trends. Is this just the culmination of your time in the space? or? Yeah, so the origin of these 12 different long-term trajectories that technology will probably move along in the next um, 20 to 30 years could have been sliced or cut in, in a different way. They're all kind of self feeding, they're all kind of codependent. 
they they are self-supporting in the sense that one of the trends will feed the other. And so um, it's really not critical, like even what the names are, though they're all motions and, and, and forward motions I've given them names of like a verb, they came from looking or, or trying to ask uh, about what technology wanted, what was the basic bias in technology. And it came from looking at where technology was being used or unofficially by, by, by kids, by where it was abused, say, by um, uh, uh, the outlaws and, and uh, the underworld, and where it's sort of misused on the street in the sense of it being uh, exploited where no money was involved. And so um, there's a sense in which kind of this commercialization takes place as money's involved is sort of um, often uh, hides the the inherent biases in the in the technology and and we look at these other kind of edge cases we can see those biases at where it kind of wants to go and that's sort of what I was doing so it's from my experience of trying to look at the unofficial versions of technology to get a sense of where where it kind of goes if there wasn't human interaction or human misdirection because of of the economy or because of money being made. Listeners of Future Squared will know that I believe that there has never been a better time to start a business. Having co-founded a children's entrepreneurship program myself, and I'm always making the point that when I was their age, to start a tech company would have been almost impossible and would have required me to mortgage mum and dad's home, something I'm sure they would have been ill-prepared to do. The costs and barriers to entry were simply too high. But today, it's never been easier for anyone with an idea and a little bit of guidance, regardless of age, gender, creed, and so on, to start a technology business. So I asked Kevin what he made of these sentiments. Yeah, it's true. And um, not only that, but the potential market, the audience Mm. for these things has never been greater, which makes um, it easier to to find you know customers and if you do uh, need to learn something it's been never been easier to to learn to find out how things are done to learn from those who've already done things and so that also contributes to making it the easiest and the best time ever in the history of the planet to start something and on it being easier than ever to learn. I think uh, it's Peter Diamandis who likes to say that kids today with Google have access to more information than the President of the United States would have had, say, 20 years ago. Absolutely. Mm. In fact, there's actually, um, I was visiting some um, three-letter agencies in the U.S., and they used to have uh, something that they produced, they called the Daily Briefing for the President, and it was an entire room of people whose job it was was to produce this daily briefing Mm -hmm. and now they have like two people because um, a lot of what they're used to produce can be found by googling Um, and you know just there's just so much information now available so that's another way in which um, you know the the typical person today no matter where they live in the world if they have even a phone a smartphone has access to this resource beyond what King's had and that lowers the barrier for what it takes to make something new or to start something from happening. Just a quick word from our sponsor and we'll be right back. One thing separates OK Venture Returns from Great Venture Returns. Deal flow. Do you wish your firm had more of it? With just 2% of venture firms capturing 95% of returns, 
Content is becoming essential to cultivating visibility, reputation, brand, and deal flow. Here at Sonic Boom, we specialize in crafting compelling content for venture capital firms. Find out more and lock in your free one-hour strategy call at sonicboom.vc. And now, back to the show. I mean, you just talked about a three-letter agency in the U.S. who had a big team and now it's just two people. And I think we're seeing evidence of that across a number of different industries, whether it was Netflix today with 4,000 employees versus Blockbuster's 60,000, but Netflix has a market cap of 40 plus billion dollars. And I think Blockbuster's at their peak was about 5 billion. Um, You look at Instagram being acquired with 13 employees for a billion dollars the same year that Kodak filed for bankruptcy. And I know from a conversation I had with uh, Tyler Cowan, Cowan uh, the marginal, from Marginal Revolution, he's also an economist, and he's basically been talking about how over the past, say, 17 years since the turn of the millennium, productivity has skyrocketed, but employment rates are pretty much flatlined. So there's this growing gap. Um, do you see this as worrying trend or do you feel we're in the, in the middle of say a, a paradox where it'll take time to just adjust to that as, as was the case say, at the start of the 20th century when we moved from steam to electricity yeah it, it's a really good question and Tyler's no um, uh, I mean he's, he's pretty smart and, and I trust um, his intuitions I, th- I think the answer is, is that we really don't know what is happening this is certainly a a new era mm. for humanity and new kind of economy and in addition to to that worry if we're going to talk about worries there's the long-term worry at the global level of a decreasing population uh, around the globe we're talking you know beyond 2050 2070 around there um, the number the numbers will start to to reduce worldwide not just um, the fertility rate but the actual population numbers and that's a, another regime that we have no experience in which is fewer and fewer people um, and trying to to have rising living standards with fewer and fewer people which we've never had experience in doing before so I don't know what's going to happen with automation as we move into it whether it will rebound whether the the productivity of the machines will allow everybody to, to capture that um, surplus. There's been talk about universal basic income as a way of redistribution. Um, I think it's an, that's an idea that needs to be tried and experimented with in order to find out, to, to evaluate whether that could possibly work. Um, I, so uh, I, I do know that this automation, artificial intelligence, will create more new opportunities and employment than it would remove, um, particularly in the 20 to 30 year horizon that we're talking about. This will reshape most jobs because most jobs are bundles of different tasks and some of those tasks are about if doing things efficiently and those are the kinds of tasks that would go to the bots. And so they'll kind of redefine all the jobs because some elements of it can be automated pretty easily, but some jobs, of course, would be affected more than others. And how that works out on average, I think, is still going to be difficult to, to, to see. But I, I, am, I am optimistic about the um, opportunities that it's going to present for, for many people, including people without college degrees, who still have 
qualities that AIs and robots don't have, which is that they understand humans, that they that we still prefer we still prefer the company of other humans, and um, uh, when they're adding value. I mean, if we don't want to interact with humans when it's not necessary, that's what you know cashiers were about. Mm. They're kind of doing a job that we don't really need done by a, yep. by a human. But there are other aspects of healthcare, of um, curation, of uh, experience where we still truly value um, interacting with humans. And so those are going to be opportunities for people who have people skills. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to begin to value those uh, more than we have in the past because we will be able to do things robotically and automatically. And that means that the human interaction becomes scarce and precious. At this point of the conversation, I filled Kevin in on a conversation I had with world-renowned economist Tyler Cowen in episode 124 of Future Squared, where Tyler cited U.S. Bureau of Labor statistics, which show that from 2000 to 2016, productivity has surged, but private employment has flatlined. The gap between the two seems to be getting bigger, spurred on by gaining automation and spearheading a lot of talk on universal basic income or UBI. But if this world becomes a reality, what will we do? Yeah, I, I think that um, we will find new things to do. Um, and, and more importantly, we'll find new things that we desire. Mm. There's nobody um, demanding uh, that we have, um, you know, that we travel in air-conditioned comfort mm. while watching um, animated cartoons and listening to music. Um, that, that was just that was just beyond anything. But now um, we sort of feel like if an airplane or the entertainment doesn't work, that we should get our money back. It's just um, <laughs> it's uh, we we have raised our expectations and raised our demands and raised new desires that we didn't know that we had. Uh, if and a lot of these occupations in the future are going to seem ridiculous to us now. Uh, I mean, I mean, I mean, if we were to to give them names, just as if we told that farmer um, in the 100, 150 years ago that you know, your children will be um, social media strategists. That's a, that's a, a <laughs> card I saw recently. It's like social media strategists. They would laugh at you. They were, they would no idea what that meant. It would be silly. It would make any sense. It would be ridiculous. And I think a lot of the occupations that we'll have in 30 years will be will sound to us now to be just as silly and ridiculous um, because we don't we we can't imagine those as being desires that we have yeah. or that we'd be willing to pay for that. Who's going to pay for that? And I think um, that's what technology is doing all the time is um, increasing desires and wants until we feel that we can't live without them. Mm. We can't, we, you know, we can't live without the thing in our pocket and all the little apps that it makes. I think that's a great point about um, people looking back on, say, 2017 in 100 or 200 years and thinking, wow, look at all the stuff that these guys are doing. Uh, I know you said 70% of today's jobs will probably be gone by the end of the century. And it's probably something that's hard for people to grasp that you know, 150 years ago, I mean, the world's been spinning for, what, two and a half billion years. Humankind, in some way, shape, or form, has been around for uh, several hundred thousand years. And therefore, when we look at, say, the last hundred years of change, there's been so much change, yet it's just a speck 
in what is the timeline of human history. And maybe that's why it's so hard for people to understand where we're going, because they're just basing things off the last 50 years. Right. We call that the short now and the, mm. the long now, which is our term for thinking about, well, you know, how about the past hundred years, the next hundred years, or how about for that matter, the past thousand years, the next thousand years, you, you should really expand our perspective because there are, we're the benefit of people who have um, taken a generational view and made things that might have taken more than our lifetime to complete and it certainly have lasted more than their lifetime and we should be doing the same. We should be embarking on projects that may take a generation or two to complete mm-hmm. and will certainly uh, last for several generations and I think that's what civilization is in, in many ways is the um, is the mechanism to allow us to work on and complete uh, things that are at a scale of generations rather than just individual lives. If there's one thing today that's a throwback to the industrial age, it's education. The world is simply changing faster than ever, but education and the way that children learn is not. I asked Kevin what he thinks about the education system and whether or not it's doing a good job of preparing children for the inevitable. The answer probably won't come as a surprise. The education system we have today is sort of like one of the last remaining at least in the US areas of socialism, mm. so to speak, in terms of um its ability to adapt is really mired in politics because I think that collectively as a species we know lots of how to learn and to learn better and to learn quicker and most importantly uh, about how to learn to learn but implementing it on a wide scale has been really really difficult for many social and political reasons but I, I you know many people have observed that you know the the school was set up kind of for, during industrial age to really produce people who were suited to work in the industrial age yeah. and we haven't really shifted yet and it's it's it's, it's a challenge in some parts because I do think that there's technology needed to do what we want in the information age um, to train people in a personal way. And I think technology will help. At the same time, I, I don't think it's all technology. I think to learn how to learn broadly, we want to learn as many different ways and we want to have as broad an exposure to the world as possible, including not spending all day in front of a screen. And so so there's a limited use of, of technology in, in education as well. And so I do think that Thinking about the Uber skill of learning how to learn is 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 chief, and um, I think it's even a little bit more um, a higher bar is um, teaching each person uh, how they learn best themselves in their own personal way is really what we're after, and that does require tremendous amounts of um, insight, tremendous amounts of measurement, tremendous amounts of kind of testing and trying and evaluation on the part of both students and teachers to yeah. um, help help a person arrive at the understanding of how they uh, learn best themselves. And um, it's it's a complex project, but I think that which should be the curriculum for uh, schools is um, we're going to teach each child how they how that child 
themselves learns best mm-hmm. and it's like wow if you can get that then then that's really golden in addition to that um, learning how to learn I think we want to learn how to question I have a whole chapter in the book about the shift from the value of having right answers to to the value to having great questions yeah. and I think I think learning how to question is a, another skill that you we want to teach everybody and um it's the source of discovery and innovation and scientific breakthrough all come around by learning to ask really great questions and that's um a super skill that is very transferable and incredibly powerful and then i think the third component for me is learning what i would call techno literacy learning um uh, how technology works and maybe even having to be taught the best practices in the new media, the best practices in evaluating and trying to decide whether to adopt a certain technology. So I, th- I think that kind of the general skill of being the newbie uh, translates into kind of a literacy about technology which I think is going to be useful because there's going to be new technologies that we're all confronted uh, and we have to have some skill in trying to decide how to use it, whether we should use it, uh, how not to be sucked in, how to be critical, etc. And I think that's its own new skill. You touched on some really great points there around um, you know, broad experiences, asking the right questions, and as you alluded to, they're effectively underlying traits of an entrepreneur, of an innovator, and I think Clayton Christensen's book, um, The Innovator's DNA, he identifies networking, observing, questioning, and challenging the status quo as four of the key traits. So it aligns really well. I mean, at the moment, there seems to be a big push globally around STEM education, but oftentimes it overlooks, uh, say, the entrepreneurial side of things or the teaching kids to ask questions and challenge the status quo because you can be really, you can be techno-literate, but unless you challenge things and question things and if you just blindly build stuff, you end up falling into the trap of, say, a lot of startups out there who are you know, gung-ho about building stuff, but 95% of the time they fail because they're not asking good enough questions. But I think there's no escape from failure. That's of course. actually what I would call the embrace of failure is one of those DNA components that mm-hmm. um, uh, you then that's at the heart of science and innovation. Mm-hmm. And it's also one of the reasons why I think humans have um, a slight advantage right now over AI robots is that um, we tentatively embrace inefficiency. We, we're, we're, we're very good at wasting time, and AIs and robots are very good at efficiency. And the kind of tasks that are efficient we will give to the robots because they're, they're, robots are for productivity, and productivity is for robots. And so these enterprises like innovation in science are inherently inefficient. And so we can become good at them because we like to be inefficient. I suppose on innovation, entrepreneurship, science being inefficient, the traditional large organization, your you know New York Stock Exchange listed companies, most of them have been built uh, to be efficient uh, with 20th century management, say philosophies underpinning the way they do things. Uh, how should um, large organizations go about preparing themselves for this change. I mean, obviously embracing failure, learning how to 
move faster are a couple of things, but the way they're built is effectively all geared towards delivery, not so much discovery. So, I mean, what should executives at large organizations be thinking about um, to prepare themselves for the inevitable? That's a fair question because in my in, in my book, the more successful a large corporation is, the more it's imprisoned by its success. Mm. That goes that's true today for the Googles and the Amazons of the world. And so the bigger they get and the more successful they get, the the harder it is for them to partake in the next new disruption because those disruptive things that will later be very powerful always begin in areas that are inherently not profitable, yeah. low margins, high risk, small markets, mm-hmm. and by definition, they can't afford to play there because they're efficient, they're about excellence, they are about profitability. And so um, the only people who are going to play there are startups who, who have nothing to lose and who can't afford to play anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, we have this never-ending saga and drama of the big, successful organizations being disrupted by the young startups because the startups have an advantage that they are going to play in this death zone. Death zone meaning there's high likelihood that they're going to fail. So you have all, so they have like these myriad young startups all playing in this death zone, and occasionally um, one of them succeeds and overthrows the dominance of the existing monopolist but the uh, disadvantage of course of the startups is that there's a high rate of failure and that's that's the that's the challenge yeah um so so you the entrepreneur has to be somebody who recognizes that and is just going to take failure as a means of learning they're going to fail and they're going to fail again and they're going to fail again and then they're going to eventually succeed mm. Yeah, and that's and that's uh, aligns with what a lot of people say. I think most recently I read Mark Manson's subtle art of not giving a fuck, where he said um, something like, "If you're prepared to embrace pain to get to your goals, you become unstoppable." And that's effectively the the mindset that an entrepreneur needs. Otherwise, if they kind of cower at the first sort of hint of pain or struggle, then they're not going to go through enough failures, like you said, to find that elusive product market fit. Yeah, I, I was just traveling with a guy, a very mild-mannered guy who just shocked us by mm. declaring that he had ascended Everest twice. Wow. And, um, I mean, he was like the last person. And he kept saying, anybody can do it. And I was like, anybody can do it. And he said, yes, it's, anybody can do it. All you have to do is, like, for three months, you're going to be totally sick. <laughs> And unable and like dying, and if you can just last through that, then you can do it. And so, you know, like it says, you'll you'll break your rib from coughing so much, and you'll be constantly, you know, vomiting. It says, you know, if you just if you just tolerate three months of being terribly ill. Then yeah, you can you can climb Everest. Like, yeah, that's a good description of a yeah. startup. Yeah, willing to go through that three months of pain. Right. It's all good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I just wanted to tie together a couple of things we've talked about, um, Kevin, which was large organizations trying to say uh, navigate this change and um, education. If say large organizations started hiring for 
broad experiences um, for techno literacy, which doesn't necessarily need to come from a, say, college degree. It could come from, say, short, just-in-time courses. Um, does that then change the face of education? Because if companies don't necessarily want a four-year degree, but they just want to see broad experiences, they want to see that you're the type of person that has good people skills, asks the right questions, and perhaps you've done a bunch of short online or offline boot camps, um, and you've learned a bunch of current in-demand skill sets, perhaps that changes um, the face of education going forward, and then universities either have an incentive to change or they will cease to exist. I, I think you're exactly right, and I, I can't prove this right now, but but my experience in, say, the hiring practices around Silicon Valley is that you get one point for a college degree and you get 10 points for all these other experiences yeah. that you were just talking about. And maybe, you know, some of the larger Fortune 500s have more complicated uh, rules for looking at people or, you know, very, uh, you know, certain in the sciences, they certainly have a bias uh, towards degrees. But the rest of the world, I think, is, they're, they're smart and really, you know, really looking for the best. Um, they, they're much more paying attention to the kinds of um, achievements that you're, that you're talking about and whether that can be transferred, that, that, that shift how fast it can be transferred back into the um, uh, educational establishment. Um, you know, I, I don't know, but I, I do have hope because um, I know that when I went to school and um, was on my way to uh, decide about college, there was no such thing as uh, gap year. There was no such thing as uh, internships. There was no such thing as these other kind of programs of maker spaces and, and, and you know, w whatever it is. And now there is. And so the, the, that's an admission to the fact that um, these broader experiences are much more valuable to the world and to and to people who do make jobs, and I, and I think that um, this still may be a very very slow process of having this feedback into high schools and and below, um, but I think the churn that we're seeing right now with a lot of private schools and uh, people trying stuff is is that people recognize that we need to be open to to alternatives. So again, I think. Education is just going to be glacially uh, slow and changing. And I've run out of patience because for as long as I've been alive, people have been talking about educational re reform. And so it's like, what more do you we know? We know, we know, we know, we know. But um, I, I just don't have much. Uh, I, I'm a little bit more pessimistic about that than, than I am about the rest of, uh, of technology. Yeah, it's actually funny you say that. I was reading um, some old Stoic philosophy, I think it was Epictetus, and there was some passages in there that referred to uh, the education system of the day, and this is going back to, say, 100 AD and how it needed to change. So <laughs> I think that conversation's been going on for a little while. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it may be that it's like law. I mean, I, I was often frustrated the fact that the law was always behind the times, but then I actually came to appreciate that because I think we don't want regulation to be premature. We don't want premature regulation. We want regulation to kind of absorb like a consensus about how things will be and then kind of put it into code. Mm. And so we, I think 
technology absolutely has to be regulated, but I think it doesn't want to be prematurely regulated. And so it does want to kind of come at the very end when we kind of have some idea about what this stuff is and how it works and what's good and bad. And then we can kind of put it into code. So for me, regulation is needed, but premature regulation is a disaster. So you do want it to be conservative and kind of very slow. And, you know, maybe there's an argument about education being, you know, at the end of the train because you, you know, you don't want to, uh, you know, you don't want to be too caught up in fashion. I, I don't know. You know, we've, uh, I, I don't believe that one, but I'm just trying to, to see if we could see it a different way. We've seen the likes of Airbnb and Uber disrupt markets across the globe. And oftentimes, the first reaction of incumbents is to cry foul and ring the regulator. But Kevin offers some words of warning in his book, saying that banning the inevitable backfires. These inevitable uh, trends, these trends that I'm talking about are, uh, are inevitable in the sense that they are baked, their causality is based into the very nature of the yeah. physics and chemistry and matter that we use to build all these devices, including the digital stuff. It has a physical um, form. And these long trends are um, going to happen independent of of humans and, and or which humans are kind of invented them. So, um, you know, the, the, the telephone was inevitable. And we, once you had electrical wires and switches and stuff. And we know that because it was like patented twice within, you know, Alexander Graham Bell. And I think in the afternoon there was this um, Italian guy, the same afternoon he, Graham Bell, went to patent it. Another person uh, pat, uh, tried to patent it like the same day independently. And that was just one example of, of the simultaneous inventions again and again, Edison, Thomas Edison being the 32nd inventor of the electrical light bulb. Because when it's time, this next thing will come because everything is there it's baked into the form of the physics and it's going to happen so those larger forms are inevitable but the character the particulars are not and that's what that's why edison succeeded because he got the particulars of that particular voltage and whether it had a vacuum or inert gas and all these things he got that just right and he got the the, the the marketing of it right and so he was commercially successful in getting the particulars right and we could say that the internet was inevitable but the kind of internet that we're going to have is not so whether it's open or closed commercial or non-commercial national or international those characteristics are in no way uh, inevitable they're very unpredictable and they make a huge difference to us and we have a huge choice about it and so um when we talk about um, something being inevitable, the particulars are not. And the quote that you were just saying, we might, that was how did I say that? Um, you, banning the inevitable backfires. So if we try to stop that, all we're doing is we're not stopping it from coming. We're just no longer engaging in the particulars. So what that means is that if we, if we try to stop it, we don't get to steer it. And it's only by engaging with the technology that we can steer it. Only by, by by using it do we actually get to, to determine the particulars. If we try to ban it or prohibit it, we don't get to steer it because it's going to come anyway. But then we're not we're not engaged with it, so we don't get to form it. So my message is is that embracing these technologies like 
artificial intelligence and virtual reality, even though they may seem scary, even though they inevitably will produce new problems, even though some of those problems will be very, very horrendous in some senses, we need to embrace them and use them in order for us to steer them into the forms that we find convivial. Yeah, and that lines very well with... um a few topics in your book, but also with entrepreneurship. I mean, you've got your existing idea, but the idea that actually works isn't just going to come to you. You've got to work. You've got to take your idea to market. You've got to learn from uh, the way customers interact with it. And then and only then will the answer come to you. It's not going to come to you by sitting inside the building. And um, on... Uh yeah, I, it, it's it's... Uh, another way to say the same thing is that um, compared to where we'll be in 30 years, um, there are no AI or VR experts today. That we basically know nothing about artificial intelligence today or or virtual reality compared to where we'll be in 30 years. And so that means that um, anybody out there listening has as much of a chance to become that. AI or VR expert or have their company become that than, than anybody else because we just are at the very beginning. And going back to your point about entrepreneurs and, and dealing with um, real stuff, the way that you're going to get to that expertise right now is to begin to fool around with this stuff. Mm-hmm. There's Again, you're in the death zone of the early stages where there's not a lot of money likely to be made, but there is a lot to be learned. And if you're willing to waste some time playing around with AI, which you can now purchase right now from this minute from Google or, or Microsoft or even IBM yeah. for, for cheap, then you'll learn far more than you will buy anything written in a book or even in school. And so um, uh, this is the early days and you're not late and you, there are no experts. And so this opportunity is to grab some of the lar- uh, low-hanging fruits that any early frontier will have. Um, uh, you know, a lot of the Industrial Revolution's greatest hits, so to speak, <laughs> were found by people dabbling with electricity in their barn. And in the beginning, people had no idea what electricity was. I mean, they, they really literally didn't know whether it was a uh, animal uh, energy, whether it was um, uh, a, a new dimension, you, you know what, and so they, and they were just fooling around with it, and um, uh, they went on to discover many things that you could just discover by yourself. And I think there's going to be a whole set of very fundamental discoveries that will be made about AI and um, virtual reality that will be the the easy ones that are just kind of available. It's like the early days of the internet where you were just taking something and putting it online. Uh, Not all of them worked. It was a matter of execution. Uh, But the the premise was that anybody could have done it. Um, And uh, that's where we are right now with these new technologies. We saw how our online echo chambers or internet filters may have played a part in influencing the outcome of the U.S. election. Online recommendation systems have in some way been blamed for giving us more of what hardens our existing belief systems and prevents us from trying something new or questioning the way things are. I was really keen to explore what Kevin thinks about the whole, because you liked X, we think you'll like Y movement, and how we might combat the risk of being stuck in an online bubble. Yeah, there's so many options, so many 
things to choose from, so many sources of news, so many new songs being produced every year, in addition to the millions and millions of old stuff, new books, new products that we simply don't have time, resources, capability to evaluate, let alone to even address or, or consume them. And so we are having to make layers and layers of filters, recommendations, guidance, curators into the mix. And they have problems. All of them have problems. They overfit, the technical word, they overfit us to, to they blind us to things that are what we don't like. Um, they uh, can, can keep us into kind of little um, cycles of, of uh, self-reinforcement. Yeah. And the challenge is that the only way out of it is not to get rid of the filters. And it doesn't work either. It's actually more layers of filters that are better. And so, from now on in, there are going to be more and more layers, and there will always be cries for removing the filters, but removing the filters isn't going to work. It's inevitable that there will be more layers, and what you want to have is this better and better layers of filters. Yep. And so that's part of the technical literacy is understanding that you can't get by without filters, but what you want to do is you want to become smart about them. We want to understand how they work. We want the best practices, yep. but there will be more of them. Yeah, and again, it comes back to what you said earlier about questioning and questioning what you're consuming, not just blindly sitting there and, oh, Netflix has recommended I watch this. I'm just going to watch it. Well, yeah, um, th that's it. So I, 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 in general, I'm very optimistic about the future. I think that there's going to be a lot of problems, but there will be even better answers in the future mm -hmm. um, and better questions, which will guide us through. I urge all your listeners to try the new stuff that comes along, um, waste some time in investigating where it goes, and um, try to embrace what you can. All right. Well, um, people can pick up a copy of The Inevitable on Amazon and wherever good books are sold. They can find you online at kk.org and on Twitter at Kevin2Kelly. Is there anything else they should check out? I look at recommendo.com. Uh, we do a weekly newsletter of six really very, very brief recommendations about really great stuff to watch, listen to, go to, use, or tips. And it's free at recommendo.com. Fantastic. With one M. We'll Recommendo with one M. Fantastic. We'll add that to the show notes for our listeners. Thanks again, Kevin, for um, sure. providing a wealth of value to our listeners. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your sunny afternoon in California. Okay, great. Well, thanks for having me. That's a wrap. If you like what you heard, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you listen to it and share it with a colleague or friend. Venture Backed was brought to you by Sonic Boom Media, a content agency helping VC firms generate better deal flow. Head over to sonicboom.vc to learn more and sign up to our fortnightly newsletter for more podcast episodes and venture insights.